Some years ago, a New York construction worker named Wesley Autry was waiting for the next train to come on a subway platform with his two young daughters. Suddenly, a young man stumbled and fell onto the subway tracks, apparently having a seizure. Just then, the horn and the rumble of the next train could be heard, bearing down on the young man who lay helpless in its way. Without any time for second thoughts, Wesley jumped into the tracks and tried to pull the man out of harm's way. But immediately, it became clear that there was no time to pull him out. The train bore down too fast. Wesley laid the man down in the middle of the tracks, told him to lay absolutely still, and pressed him down with his body as far as he could go. The train came and drove over them both with only inches to spare, coming so close to Wesley that it left grease and oil marks on his hat. When the train finally came to a halt, Wesley called up to the horrified crowd, There are two little girls up there. Let them know their daddy is okay. It's a true story. And when that story was told in the national news, Wesley was hailed everywhere as a hero, a good Samaritan. He went on Oprah and he went and met the president. Here was someone who had risked his life to save a stranger when others stood by and watched, a good Samaritan. Jesus' parable from 2,000 years ago has so entered into our moral consciousness that when we hear a story like Wesley's, everyone knows exactly what to call him. He was a good Samaritan. If Wesley had dove onto the tracks to save, let's say, his two young daughters, we'd certainly admire his love and courage. But he probably would have just made local news, not national news. We expect that kind of thing from parents, right? We don't necessarily expect it from total strangers. The young man Wesley saved was a 20-year-old film student named Cameron. Cameron was white, about 30 years younger than Wesley, and probably would never have had much to do with him. He was a black man, Wesley was, who lived in Harlem and worked construction. Yet, in the blink of an eye, a stranger on the subway station with whom he had little in common became his savior. That dynamic surely is part of what so strikes us about Wesley's story, just like it's part of what strikes us still today about Jesus' parable. Jews and Samaritans in that place and time had little to do with one another. There's more than that, actually. They didn't want to have anything to do with one another. They were old enemies with a long list of grievances on both sides. When a Jew saw a Samaritan or a Samaritan saw a Jew on the street, they didn't just see another face in the crowd. Instead, they saw what you might say was a representative of a whole group of traitors and frauds, someone whom the very sight of almost made you angry and offended. It's not hard to update the story a little bit for today to bring out just what Jesus was saying and how offensive it must have sounded. Imagine if the young man who fell onto the subway tracks, let's say, was a Jewish settler in the West Bank and Wesley was a Palestinian and a member of the PLO. Imagine that the young man was wearing a red Make America Great Again hat and Wesley was a border crosser from Guatemala who didn't have papers. 
Imagine those roles reversed, if you'd like. Imagine you're the young man who fell onto the tracks, and the man who comes to save you stands for everything you think is unjust and wrong with the world. Or imagine you're there on the tracks, and the young man who falls in stands for everything you think is wrong with the world, and you know it, and you only have a split second to decide. Do I risk my neck to save him? Is he my neighbor? Now the parable is more uncomfortable. When something in the Bible makes us feel uncomfortable, it's a good sign that we have started to understand it. It's easier if we just think of the parable as risking our necks to save a stranger. But it gets harder when we see that Jesus isn't just talking about strangers. He's talking about enemies. Love your enemies, Jesus says. This is what he means. He's talking about the people who get on your last nerve, who make us so mad we can spit, who you can name ten reasons why they don't deserve the time of day. What would happen if you were beat up and laying somewhere in a ditch, and the people who you thought were on your side, the great and good people, passed by on their way to do more great and good things? But then, then some sinner who's got it all wrong is the one who comes to you and stretches out his hands and cleans your wounds and gives you a place to stay. What then? Listen again to the question to which Jesus told this story as an answer. The gospel starts by saying that a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Now, don't hear in this a lawyer like we have today, or like we have in the congregation, but instead someone who specialized in the law of Moses, like one of the Pharisees. The person who asked this question was a religious man who knew the Bible backwards and frontwards, and had dedicated his life to understanding exactly what it was so that he could follow it to the letter. That's who this lawyer was. But his heart clearly was not in the right place. Jesus sums up the whole law for him in the great double love commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Actually, the lawyer comes up with that idea. And the lawyer then follows it up with a second question that shows that he's not really concerned primarily with loving God and neighbor. What he's after is the Bible says, to justify himself. He wants to know what he needs to do in order to inherit eternal life. It's all about him. And he also, I think, wants to be clear with Jesus that it can't be all about them if them means the wrong kind of people. And who is my neighbor, he asks. Subtext. Surely not those people over there, right? Surely not those sinners and tax collectors and Samaritans who don't follow the law. They don't need love. They don't deserve it yet. What they need is justice. You can just hear this fellow's mind working, I think. He loves the law because following it to the letter means that he can hold it over everyone who doesn't. 
He thinks he doesn't need mercy. All he needs is to know what the requirements are to inherit eternal life. And then he's going to do them. Surely, that's what love means, doesn't it? Love the people who deserve it and judge the rest. That's his mindset. They're not my neighbors. Cut them off. They deserve what they get. There should be no mercy for people like them. Jesus, you don't mean that I'm supposed to love them. Yes, Jesus says. Yes, you are. And it's more than that. Because you're the one who needs mercy here. You need mercy precisely from the people that you judge, look down on, and despise. It's funny. The way Jesus tells this story, he makes himself sound an awful lot like the Samaritan. Jesus, after all, is the one that we despised, rejected, and crucified, like the despised Samaritans. Jesus is the one who picks us up out of the gutter of our lives, binds up our wounds, and bears us as his burden when we can't bear ourselves. Jesus is the one who gives us a refuge in a place of rest and provides for our every need. Jesus is the one who does all of this at the greatest possible cost to himself when we were far from God, strangers, even enemies. Jesus is the Good Samaritan. You and I, you and I are the ones in the ditch. You and I are the ones lying there on the subway tracks with the train bearing down. And there he is. This Jesus jumps onto the tracks to save us, looking strangely like someone we despise and reject. Someone we think deserves whatever he gets and offers to show us mercy, to save us. What? We say to him, who are you to show me mercy? I don't need your mercy. I don't need you to save me. The train is coming faster than we think. We may not see it, but it will be here in an instant. What do we do? Jesus says to us, just be still. Let me lay down my life for yours as the train passes by. Amen.